I want to invite you uh, to take your Bible. Uh, there isn't, isn't any in the room. That's another thing that we can't do, have any things that are shared. So uh, we didn't receive an offering this morning. By the way, there was a basket at the, at the, uh, at the doorway. You can drop that in if you want to. Um, mail it in if you'd like. Uh, however you've been doing it, that's fine. But that's there for you. Uh, but again, we, we can't pass anything around. So I would tell you what page it is in the church Bible, but that's rather irrelevant. So uh, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Gospel of John chapter 17. We're returning there um, after a hiatus from that. And uh, we're in the section uh, beginning what is called the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, 1 through 5, which is to deal with those first five verses, verses this morning. All right, so as I read, uh, follow along in your own Bibles. Let's give our full attention to God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. I need to pray. I need God's help in this time. And uh, you do too, because what we want to hear is from God. So let's pray that that will happen. Father in heaven, you call men to preach your word, but of course we can accomplish nothing of eternal lasting value. So Lord, we ask in this time that you would accomplish your good work. And as we give our attention to these few verses, we recognize that they have been breathed out by you. And you've given them to us to make us wise to salvation. You've given them to us so that we know you. And by knowing you, we come to reflect you. So do your work, we pray. I pray, as always, Lord, that you would cause your voice to transcend the voice of a mere man. Make that happen. And give us all receptive hearts minds that are ready to receive from you. And whether we be in this room or we're at home this morning, or for someone tuning in from across the world, Lord, we pray, do the work that you can, that only you can do, and cause this to bring glory to Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're, we're here back in the Gospel of John. This is, uh, this is the high priestly prayer. The setting for this text that we read together is somewhere between the upper room where, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and the Kidron Valley where they would have to cross over to, to find themselves in Gethsemane. That's where Judas would ultimately betray Jesus to give him up to those armed temple guards. 
In this first part of this, what is called this high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for himself. Now, we'll get into the rest of that in the weeks following, but this morning we're just going to give our focus to where Jesus is praying for himself. Over the last eight weeks or so, and, and maybe you're like me in this, I've spent a lot of time thinking about myself, and I'm not proud of that, but, but I've realized this, even as I approach this passage this last week. I think about myself, that how I may or may not feel safe from the virus. I think about myself in terms of how I have been inconvenienced because of this pandemic. I have been thinking about myself, if I'm able to get enough toilet paper or cleaning supplies or hand sanitizer, and perhaps you've been thinking about that, will we run out? Will I have enough? And lately, if we're able to buy enough meat, or I've been thinking about myself, how wearing a mask makes my glasses steam up. I don't like it. I've been thinking about myself in terms of wondering if the government maybe is restricting my constitutional freedoms, or maybe thinking that, is the government doing enough? Still thinking about myself. And I'm thinking even about good things. Good things, like, when will I be able to gather with my church family? And I'm so grateful that we're here this morning, but, but I long for us all to be together without restriction. I'm thinking about myself. So this morning, what I want to do is take the opportunity not to think about me and, and, and perhaps, brothers and sisters, give you the opportunity not to think about you. In this passage that we read, Jesus lifted his own eyes to heaven and he prayed to the Father. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to lift our eyes to heaven. I want us to look up and I want us to spend some time thinking about the very thing that Jesus prayed for, his own glory and the glory of the Father. Now, I get it in asking you not to think about yourself. That's, that's hardly possible. I know that the knowledge of the glory of God comes to our ears and makes its way to our hearts and impacts for eternity. So in some respects, we do have to think about ourselves. We can't remove any thought of ourselves. But that said, we can and we should turn our focus to him. Lift our eyes to heaven and see what Jesus does and see that he, that he does it for glory, for his own glory and the glory of the Father. So this morning, I want us, I want us to look at three distinct act, uh, aspects of this glory. First, there's the glory of the cross. Then there's the glory of giving life, and then the glory of fellowship. The glory of the cross, the glory of giving life, and the glory of fellowship. That's the outline for where I'm headed this morning. First, the glory of the cross. Now, as, as Christians, that phrase, the glory of the cross, we, we don't even blink at, at the sound of it, do we? But think about this just for a moment. Would we ever put glory in front of, and now think of what your favorite means of capital execution would be, okay? Not that you have a favorite one. But would you put glory in front of the guillotine or, or the noose or the electric chair or lethal injection? Would you put glory in front of any of those? Are any of these things glorious? What is glorious about the cross? 
Again, it's a, it's a common Christian phrase, and it's the glory of the cross. We see in the beginning of the text that we read together, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So what is this glory that Jesus is asking for from the Father? Now, before we answer that question, we just got to pause for a moment and consider, what is glory? What's glory? Now, commonly, we would certainly think glory as the, the display of honor and splendor, maybe brightness or excellence, preeminence, dignity. Those words kind of fit in with glory. You know, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word that shows up for, for glory, kavod. It's, it has the idea in it of heaviness, weightiness. Glory could be, certainly as we think about Jesus, it could be the, the kingly majesty that belongs to him. Or, or just in general, glory as it relates to Jesus could be his general majesty in terms of his own absolute perfection. When we think of glory, the, the range of meaning of that word glory could also include the idea of grace. But as we think about this, how, how would Jesus be glorified? If we think about that, how would he be glorified? Now, if you're just tracking here, along with the story, you'd not be wrong to think that Jesus being glorified might look like, I don't know, the dazzling brightness that Peter, James, and John witnessed when they were up with Jesus on that, what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. You find that in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. It's also recorded in Matthew 17 and Luke 9, if you're looking those up. They saw Jesus glorified. It was dazzling brightness. But you know, from this point forward, in this narrative, there is no such display of glory until after Jesus is raised from the grave. And if we rush ahead in our minds to the resurrection, I think what happens is that we miss something that is vitally important about what Jesus is asking for from the Father. If we just rush ahead to the resurrection and the appearance after, we're going to miss something about his glory. So in what sense is Jesus asking the Father to be glorified? And how can we understand it? And I want you to follow me on this. Jesus being the Son of God, he is praying to the Father. Given that who he is, right? Given who he is as the divine Son of God, Jesus' prayers to the Father are perfectly righteous. They are holy. And so that we can therefore, as a result of that, conclude that Jesus' prayer does get answered. Jesus was glorified because he prayed to the Father that he would be glorified. We can make that conclusion. You see, I, I take it here that Jesus is not asking for something other than what he knew he was about to do. He's not asking for something other than the very cross that he knows he's going to face. You see, for Jesus, the cross is not something that he had to get through to be glorified. No, the cross was the very expression of his glory and the glory of the Father. Now, you might ask, how, how could that be the glorification of Jesus? We just think of what happened at the cross, what happened in Jesus being crucified. This is what is ahead of him, right? The Son of God, rejected by his own. They, the people, 
The religious leaders who should have known better, they, they didn't see God's saving work. Instead, what they did was they falsely accused him. They credited his mighty works to Satan. They, and this would yet come before him, they were put in a place to be spat upon by soldiers, to be mocked and beaten mercilessly. A hideous display of inhumanity against the Son of God. And ultimately, they nailed him to that wooden beam and, and hoisted him up for all to see and be counted as one who is cursed. Now, you look at that scene. It doesn't look like glory, does it? Now, if glory is the display of the excellence of the Son of God, then that glory has to include something so uncommon, so wonderfully other and holy and beautiful and gracious. And, and here it is, brothers and sisters, what is so excellent, what is so uncommon, what is so beautiful is grace. Grace inexpressible, immeasurable, indescribable, gloriously sacrificial, dazzlingly beautiful, infinitely loving grace. It's the grace of God the Father giving his Son. It's the grace of the Son of God willingly taking on himself a human body only to be, as we have already described, to be hideously killed. This, this is a pure beauty that is and never will be matched for all of eternity. That's the cross. And it is glorious. Jesus spoke. He spoke of his, of his own voice I do mean that, his own voice in the Psalms and how it would be fulfilled when he quoted Psalm 118. This is Jesus' own voice in the Psalms, I take it that. He quotes it in Matthew 21. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's speaking of himself. Then he says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous. Yes, infinitely, yes, marvelous. And it is marvelous in our eyes because the cross of Christ is the perfect representation of the eternal character of God. You see, at the cross, and we observe this from a distance through the pages of scripture that comes down to us through many generations, we have the record of that. But at the cross, we get to marvel at and yes, we personally experience something that reveals the goodness and the holiness and the generosity of the love of God that could never, ever, ever be fully grasped if the Father had not sent his Son into the world. That's what we marvel at. And that's how Jesus' glorification at the cross actually brings glory to the Father. He said, Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you, my paraphrase. The Apostle Paul captured this. I, I quote this often. I love it so much, but it, I think it's captured here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Lengthy, follow along, and this is glorious. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And get this, therefore, therefore, in light of all this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See this, the way that the Apostle Paul writes this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul doesn't rush to the resurrection and his glorious appearance, no. He says, because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus is exalted because he at the cross displayed something of the wonderful, glorious character of God that could not be seen anywhere else and never will be seen. So let me ask you, friends, do you see this glory? And I know this is a glory that can only, only be seen with the eyes of faith. Do you see it? Do you have the eyes of faith? Well, my prayer is that this would grip your heart. And perhaps in this moment you feel you feel your own resistance. If you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe you feel your own resistance melting as it beckons you to come near because this is a scene like no other in all of creation. And if that's you, friend, let me, let me plead with you. Lay down everything. Set aside your resistance and let this glory wash over you. Trust Jesus fellow believer in Jesus, let me encourage you, meditate on this glory. Fill up with this knowledge. Set your mind there. Examine it and savor it. Exult in it and let it, let it cause your affections to swell. Second, I want to give focus to the glory of giving life. The glory of giving life. Another glory that appears here, another aspect of Jesus' glory that glorifies the Father too. Glory of giving life. Now, not too long ago, not too long ago, the world heroes, and I mean popularly speaking, for a lot of people, were people in entertainment or, or maybe the technology innovators. They were the heroes. But hasn't that all changed so quickly? Does anyone even care about the latest movies? Does anyone even care about the next album that whatever star is going to bring out? In fact, because nobody cares, they're not releasing movies. Because nobody cares, they're not releasing albums. Realize the heroes that we once had as a society have changed. Nobody cares about the new iPhone, really. No, right now, Right now, the heroes are the, the scientists, so they're the immunologists, they're the ones working on treatments and vaccines. The heroes are the nurses and the doctors on the front lines, and thank you to those among us who are nurses. We're in the medical profession, doctors, thank you. 
Those whose vocation is to protect and preserve life, they are the heroes of the day, aren't they? And there's glory in that. There is glory in that. We certainly appreciate and rightly praise the tireless efforts of those who are in the medical community seeking to to break the death grip of this COVID-19. Yes, to preserve life, that's glorious. But to give life in the first place, infinitely more glorious. And who can do that? Jesus. Jesus does. Look at the text again with me. Jesus prays to the Father. You have given him authority, speaking about himself, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now Jesus praying this, and it's a kind of an unusual prayer because he did it for the sake of his disciples' hearing. He did it, yes, for himself. But he said it out loud and it was recorded for us by John. And it was for us to understand something. But what Jesus is here praying is not new information for the disciples, giving eternal life to his people, saving his people from their sins. That was always his mission, wasn't it? I'll remind you of the Advent story how Joseph received a a prophetic word from the Lord in response to the the shocking and scandalous news that Mary was with child, a woman he had not known in the biblical sense. The word that Joseph hears, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Joseph told, the Lord told Joseph, his name will be Jesus, meaning the Lord's salvation. He shall reverse the curse. He shall take away the eternal consequence of sin and give eternal life to his own. I'll remind you at the beginning of this gospel, John's gospel, John introduced Jesus this very way. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus spoke of his own life-giving mission this way. He said, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And in, in 10, that's 521, and in 1028 of the Gospel of John, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So how is it that this eternal life is imparted? Knowledge. That's what Jesus said. Knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. To truly know God. To truly know him is to live eternally. And so what does it mean to know God? It means to know Jesus. That's what Jesus prayed. The only way to know God. So there are people in our world who think they know God. If they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. You may think you know God, but unless you know Jesus, you do not know God. That's what Jesus prayed. Truly knowing Jesus means that you know God and knowing God is eternal life. 
So Jesus gives this life to his own by revealing himself as the son of God. That's what the gospel of John. We show Jesus revealing himself as the son of God. And you can know him when you recognize. Again, this is key here. You can know Jesus when you recognize what he's done for you. You can't know him if you just simply acknowledge that he's a man in history. That's not knowing Jesus. Knowing that he taught people and did some some miraculous works, that's not enough. To know Jesus, you have to know what he did and why he did it. You need to know that he took your sins to the cross. You need to know that he bore the punishment that you deserve for those very sins. You need to know that he was cursed in your place. You need to know that and believe that he did it for you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Jesus prayed, this is eternal life. Do you have eternal life? Now, when he prayed, this is eternal life, it means that you have it now. You have it now. So here's an important truth about how Jesus imparts eternal life. You see, this giving of eternal life isn't just a promise of a future existence beyond the grave. It is that, but it's not merely that. It is more than that. Part of why it is for Jesus' glory and that of the Father that Jesus imparts eternal life is that there is a present spiritual manifestation of that life. So let me state it another way. When you're alive, when you're spiritually alive, you do alive things. Make sense? You'll get it. I mean, we're physically alive. If you're physically alive, you breathe. Your heart beats. That happens passively, right? But you do things actively. You you eat. Try to eat healthy. You exercise, maybe. But you do things so that you thrive. You live to live, right? You, you get that it needs to be protected. Likewise, when you're spiritually alive, when you have eternal life, you do things in keeping with that life, which means you don't do dead things. Dead things are sinful things. Dead things are lust, greed, and pride. These are the, the foundational sins behind every other sin. Anything, anything that is evil can be traced back to lust, greed, or pride. And ultimately, it's all idolatry. And those are dead things because they reek of death. And they, in fact, bring death. But when you're spiritually alive, you don't want to do dead things anymore, do you? You'd rather do what is in keeping with the life that you have been given. Now, Peter was present when Jesus prayed this prayer, and I can't help but think that maybe he had this prayer in mind when he wrote this in his second letter. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, he says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I get this. Through the knowledge 
of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's referring to Jesus. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. These are the things that Jesus says. These are the things that God's word says. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see that? The knowledge of him who called us is life. And that same knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of God, knowing him, hearing then his promises, the things that he says in the word, through them, we become partakers in the divine nature. What is that? Well, whatever it is, it's amazing. He's saying we do that now. We become partakers now in some respect. Not perfectly, I get it. We still battle against sin, don't we? But in as much as we ruminate on and dwell in and, and exult in the very promises of God, the very knowledge of Jesus and who he is and all that he has accomplished, it causes us to become partakers in the divine nature. And then as a result, live like somebody who's alive, which is not doing dead things, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so what Peter here states as an, as a, an indicative, something that is just simply true, the Apostle Paul turns into a command, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now, it's referring to what Jesus did at the cross. He bought you. He brought you near. He took your sin to the cross. So what does he say? So glorify God in your body. It's imperative. Brothers and sisters in Christ, with the knowledge of Jesus, we have been given eternal life now. What do you do with that? Glorify God in your body. Soon as much as Jesus wanted to glorify the Father, and he glorified the Father by giving life, the life that's been given to the people of God through the knowledge of Jesus and of God, that produces something in us that causes us to escape the corruption in the world that are, that are there by evil desires. And it sends glory back to God. It is to the glory of Jesus and the Father that you fully engage with the life that has been given to you in the knowledge of God through Jesus the Son. So I'm repeating myself, but the best thing that you and I can do is what is for the glory of God. So, here's the imperative. Put to death the deeds of death. Put to death the deeds of death and live the eternal life given to you now. Finally, the glory of fellowship. Um, some of you may know this or have studied this. 
I'm going to use this illustration. It might come across to you as wonky, but it seems to be the best way to explain this. So there's this concept uh, in Platonic dualism. I know I've already lost some of you, but I'm going to go with this anyway, okay? It's to explain the idea of, of goodness, right, and the human experience. So we have this idea of good in the human experience, but we don't ever feel that we perfectly attain to it. So in Platonic dualism, it's called the theory of forms. You don't need to remember that. That's not important. But, but there's an idea that swims around in, in, in people, and Plato, being a philosopher, was trying to figure this stuff out. In the absence of a belief in God, he concluded that there's this ideal that we all reach for, but we never seem to match up to it. He didn't go far enough in his thinking to conclude that there's not just a, an idea, but there is a God who is a person behind the, that idea of ultimate goodness and perfection. So when we think of good things that we have, that we enjoy, they are that because they are patterned after something that is in the character of God. But where it feels like it's not enough. It's because we understand that there's a perfect form of it. Anything that we enjoy in creation is a reflection of the character of God. Any good thing that he's given is a reflection of his character. Of course, we're the ones who muddied it up with our sin, right? And so where it feels like it falls short, it's because of our own sin. But we know that there is an ideal. Now, why do I say all of this? One of those things that we, humanly speaking, long for, that we don't have perfectly, but we know that there is a perfect idea of it in God himself, is fellowship. And Jesus puts on the display this, the glory of fellowship. It's perfectly on display in Jesus' own prayer. He said this in the prayer. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I know full well that the word fellowship isn't in our text here. But I think it's what describes this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That word fellowship is in the Bible. You've seen it a lot. and We use it a lot. But it simply means partnership. It's a rich, deep partnership. In the case of God, there is this perfect partnership between the Father and the Son. The Son does the work the Father gives him, which glorifies the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son for glorifying the Father in the work that he is doing, and it keeps going. It's this infinite glory generator that's going on between the Father and the Son. Now, if we think of all of the ways that we, as the people of God, delight in fellowship, we think about that word, that partnership. In the most intimate sense, that's, some of us have that in a marriage, but there's friendships, there's brotherhood, there's community, there's family, there is our church family. We long for these. And we hold on to these and we pursue these because they exist between God the Father and Jesus. 
The fellowship that God the Father has with God the Son and God the Son with the Father is relational, yes, but it also produces something, and that's this partnership. It accomplishes good things. That was true in creation. God made everything. But without the Word, the Son of God, says in the beginning of the Gospel of John, there was not anything made that was made. There's this perfect partnership, perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son. And that fellowship between Father and Son is what accomplished the saving of his people. The sheep that the Father gave to Jesus. I'll bring you back to John 10. Again, Jesus speaking about the works that the Father gives to him. So think of this. The context of this is this relationship that the Father has with the Son, the Son with the Father. He proclaims, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I'll pause there for just a second. You see that work together. God gives, Jesus saves, Jesus saves the ones God gives and that work is perfectly glorifying to the Father. It's done perfectly and he caps it off with this statement in verse 30 i and the father are one are one it's the glory of the fellowship that he's expressing in this prayer and he's saying give that to me now father give that to me in your presence that same that same glory i had when i was with you before before anything was created that oneness that that is between the Father and the Son. It is, it is so beautiful. It is so wonderfully glorious that Jesus' saving work not only gives us a pattern for how we, the people of God, come together in fellowship, not only gives us that pattern, but more than that, it actually brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son. That fellowship that they enjoy, God's saving work through Jesus brings us in. This is what, what John says in his first letter. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So he's talking about the knowledge of Jesus, the gospel. We proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, binds us together, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The glory, all of this revealed here in Jesus' prayer for himself. Glory. Now, we're thinking beings, of course, and it's impossible, and I said this at the outset, it's impossible to disengage our minds from thinking about ourselves. But my aim this morning was simply to take our thoughts and attention off things in the present and just to lift them, to see the glory of Jesus. 
And so, with the Apostle Paul, we say this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And so as we think on these things, I'm going to exhort you with the words of an old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, you are Glorious. Lord Jesus, you are glorious. And any, any hope that we have, any, any understanding of ourselves and the way in which we function in this world as your children is all in light of the fact that everything that you have done puts on display the immensity of the beauty the majesty, the brightness, the heaviness, the awesomeness, the grace and the glory of who you are. Teach us to live every moment in light of that truth. And may each of our lives be consumed with and lived out for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen.